All right. Well, so good to see everybody here this fine October day. I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's in the second half of that Bible that's in front of you on page 160. I invite you to turn there. We're going to be there in chapter 4 in just a moment. Hey, before we get too comfortable, I want to say we had a great morning this morning at the Rock in the Rock 5K in downtown Garland. It was a beautiful race day. I ran in record time. Just kidding. I walked a mile. But someone in our midst ran that thing in some old New Balance and ran it well. So well, in fact, that he placed first in his age group. But he also left early. So it's my privilege to present to Mr. John Brunko, first place in men ages 40 to 49. Come on down, limping on down. We ain't got time, so hurry it up. We had a great time. The Rock, of course, our community center in West Garland that we have our clothes closet within. We do our VBS in, and we just generally love those folks in our neighborhood. We had a great time this morning. Well, tonight I'm going to talk about 1 Thessalonians. We're rounding home in this series written by Paul in one of the very earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. It was a letter written to a young church, and Paul wrote it to them after he got ran out of town by a bunch of people that didn't like him talking about a new king named Jesus. So Paul writes this letter to a young church, and he gives them these broad reminders, these themes. The first theme we looked at was to stay strong in the midst of opposition. The second theme he hits on is to stay holy in the midst of a culture that's opposed to the way of Jesus. And then tonight we're shifting gears on his third big theme, and that is to stay awake. Or stay woke. (laughs) Stay awake to the fact that Jesus is going to return. And he's going to renew us and the whole world. And so tonight, if I were to drill down to a new title, another stay title. In particular tonight, he's going to say stay hopeful. While we wait for the return of Jesus, these are things that should encourage us. As we sing songs like, even so, come. Why? Because we also sing songs like, your love awakens me. The dead are coming back to life. These are reasons to sing and reasons to be hopeful. But unfortunately, as we're going to see tonight, some of this teaching that Paul gives to this young church has gotten hijacked from the modern church. And they've become words of fear and wild speculation. So we're going to drill down to what does Paul really mean to a real group of people suffering real persecution, and he offers them real hope. But we're going to let Paul speak on his terms in his times instead of some of the wild stuff that we see today in American Christianity. You with me? Let's read these passages that have become quite famous in our world in modern times. And we're going to unpack this here in a bit. We're going deep a little bit tonight. It's going to be a lot of kind of theology, a lot of Bible. So I'm going to kind of burn through a lot of information. So at the end of my talk, I want to leave some time, leave some room for some responses from you all. Things that are burning on your heart and mind that you want to share in the presence of all of us. Or some questions that you have to clarify or to highlight something I didn't. Because we just can't get to everything. 
And we're going to leave room for some responses, questions, and reflections at the end. Don't leave me hanging. I believe in you. Nothing's off the table. Let's try to work this out together as God's people, okay? We're going to talk a little bit more about staying awake and Jesus' return next week, but we're going to hit it tonight. Because we don't talk so explicitly about this stuff, I want to leave some room the next couple weeks to reflect back. Sound good? Cool. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. There's a lot packed in here. Stay with me. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Let me pause real quick and just say that word fall asleep or sleep in death. You're going to hear a few times. That's a euphemism, right? A nicer way of saying they did, okay? So the 2018 version is they've passed away. You with me? The ancient Thessalonian version is they sleep, right? Not just a Bible word, but a cultural word. They sleep in death. I'm saying that now because I have a feeling I would have forgotten it. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Happy Halloween, that's quoted in Dawn of the Dead for you playing along at home. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Scholars are trying to figure out the occasion that is the reason for why Paul would write these words to this young church. I mentioned earlier that he had to get out of town. He got ran out of town. And so there's some um, work done thinking that, you know, I bet these Thessalonian Christians had had some people they loved within their church die. And they heard Paul in the brief time he spent with this young church talk about the good news, listen, that Jesus is king, that he died, that he rose again, which is in that passage we just read, the earliest Christian creed, we believe Jesus died and rose again, then Paul probably told him, but guess what, he's going to come back and renew all of this that you see here. By he has to leave. So what they think happens is that this young church has some folks die And they're freaking out because they fear that those that have died are going to get left out or miss out when Jesus comes back. When you read the New Testament, the first generation of Christians, they believed and stayed awake to the fact that Jesus was going to return. They believed he was going to return like yesterday, like right now. Well, fast forward 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't returned in the way we just read. But next week we'll see, we should live as though he will. Because we believe he will. So you can imagine this young church. 
waiting for Jesus to come back. Right now, people have died. They think, oh, dude, they're going to miss out on the party it's going to be when Jesus comes back. Paul writes and says, no, 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 no. And he's going to answer two questions, okay? These are the two questions we're going to unpack tonight. The first is, how do we grieve as Christian people? How do we grieve? Or how should we grieve? Y'all read that at the beginning of the passage? The second question addressing these young Christians and us today is, what should we expect for those who've died? Okay? These are the questions we surmise are at the heart and mind of the Thessalonian church. And these are the two questions we're going to explore in turn tonight. Now, I want you to understand, though, these are not just Thessalonian questions, are they? And these aren't actually even just Christian questions, are they? Recently, I heard a TED Talk called On Dying Well, this radio program about the TED Talks, and they have a snippet from a researcher that went to 92 different countries exploring death and grief in all different kinds of places with all different kinds of people. And she came back and said, basically, it boils down to these three ideas to address the second question. What should we expect for those who've died? They said it basically boils down to nothing, kaput, zilch, they're done, they sleep, they're gone, nothing happens. The second bit they see a lot in Asia is some idea of reincarnation. They're going to come back in some new shape in the same place, okay? Or there's a third summary in all these countries and cultures. There's going to be something, some place, some existence beyond death, which would, of course, square with the Judeo-Christian understanding. But this first question I'm really curious about because in our culture, in modern America, we don't want to grieve. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to touch death. We don't want to experience death. We don't want our friends and loved ones to experience death. And these are good and natural things. But they're also things that Jesus wants to inform us and meet us in. So these are the two questions we're going to be spending time in, all under the umbrella of Paul's message to this church, which is essentially this. Those united to Jesus will be raised like Jesus to live forever with Jesus. Do you see how a belief like this could inform and answer those two questions on how do we grieve and what should we expect after death? This is what Paul writes and wants to underline to these new Christians and to all the Christians that would come after them. That those united to Jesus, that have said, yes, I'm in, Jesus, you got my life, they'll be raised like Jesus to live forever with Jesus. I want you to understand this. This statement could be said, yes and amen, to by all Orthodox Christian denominations. Shout out to our Catholic friends, our Eastern Orthodox friends, our Methodist, Baptist, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, fill-in-the-blank church. Everyone could say yes and amen to this, that we're going to be raised and that we can live forever with Jesus, right? The offer of Jesus is nothing else than life. 
and not even death can separate it. The trick is we get all kinds of craziness and division on the how and the mechanics of that. The how it works, when it happens, that's where we get a little sideways. But I want you to understand that our focus statement tonight is something that every Orthodox Christian for all centuries and even today can say yes and amen to. And listen, it's a message of hope, not of fear or mystery. There is mystery in how that looks, but it's not a puzzle to be solved. So let's move forward and look at our first question. What is Paul up against? How should that statement inform how we should grieve? This is our first question. I'll say this first and foremost. Grief is inevitable, but grief is good. Everyone says, wait, no, it stinks, actually. No one likes to grieve. But I'm here to tell you, ask any therapist or counselor. If Ben Fall was here, he'd say the same thing. As hard as it is, grief is good. I love this statement I heard recently, that grieving is a form of loving. Think about the times you've endured seasons of grief. It's because you loved this person. You longed for them to be well or your relationship to be well if something was cut off. Grief is a form of loving. It gets out the emotions that you had within and it shows you how well they loved or you loved and grief is a form of loving. As hard as it is, it's good and it's also inevitable. We shouldn't avoid it and we also shouldn't move people too quickly through it. And I don't think that that's what Paul's trying to do with this young church. He's saying, look guys, we have reason to hope even in the face of grief. But he's not telling them, stop grieving. You understand? I was so grateful to hear a story from a professor in seminary in which he made a mistake that I knew I would have made. Okay? He tells a story of when he was a young pastor, one of the first funerals he ever did. He was there at the visitation, and he was sitting with a woman who had just recently and surprisingly and tragically lost her husband. And so after all the family and friends clear out, here's this woman sitting there in an empty funeral home with her kids, and he goes up to her and he puts a hand on her back, and he says this, well, at least he's in a better place. How many of you, without raising hands, have heard or said this? Okay? Let me pause and say, guess what? I think... That's just what we do because we don't know what to say. There is no magic bullet perfect thing to say. So that's why I love to just be with them, say I'm sorry. But even that's not perfect because what do you say when I say I'm sorry? You'll say it's okay. Because you want to say no, it's actually not okay. So what I'm trying to say is if y'all know something better, tell me because I'm a pastor and I go to hospitals a lot. But I think it illustrates this point that we want to try to make sense of it. We want to move through it. We want to say, people, let's just, let's just get to the happy part again. And I'm saying that Paul says, no, 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 no. you got to sit in it, but you can't let it get the last word. Well, this young pastor didn't get the last word. He said, well, at least we know that she's in a better place. And he says that she wiped the tears from her eyes, took a breath, composed herself, looked him in the eye, and just said very plainly, I know that, Pastor. I know that he's with Jesus. 
but I want him to be home for dinner when we get there. And we kind of laugh, but this is a true statement. So I just want to say, how should we grieve? I want us to walk this fine line as people of hope that live amongst this tension that say we are the people in this world who are not to grieve as those who have no hope. We are people in this world who, even in our grief, should be holding this tension of look how hard and rough and terrible and miserable it is. As Toby led us in a psalm that says he's yelling and crying out to God. He feels abandoned by God. You have permission to get it out. Would you just get it out? Live on this side of the tension, grieving and snot crying with people because it sucks. And there is a sting in death. But can we grieve in such a way, not as those without hope, but who th- those who are so stubborn to look ahead to the future and say things like, death does not get the last word. Yes, we prayed. Yes, we begged God. Yes, we looked and no, this person wasn't healed and no, it didn't happen. But we need to be a but people. We need to live in this tension that say, yes, there's another shooting today, but Jesus will return and renew the world. And Psalm 46 says he's going to turn all these guns into plowshares for working the renewed creation. But one day you will be healed. We will be well. We will be reunited with those united to Jesus. These are words of hope. But pick your moments and read the room. How about? But can we walk together as a community of hope? Paul bookends this section on the mystery and amazing fact of Jesus' return, but he does so with encouragement. And this is a statement I want you to latch on to. Hope does not make us immune to grief, but hope does inform our grief. This is what I'm trying to convey. This is what Paul is trying to convey. Hey guys, you've suffered loss. Grief is at your doorstep. Let hope inform how you grieve. Not to move you too quick, not to avoid it, but to inform our grief. These are words of encouragement, not speculation or fear. Paul wants us to grieve in hope, not despair, as those without it. We are people that have a strange worldview, but it's also a worldview that's ancient and spoken of by people across cultures that maybe there is something beyond death. And we believe that it's all tied to the person and work of Jesus. The bedrock for Paul's word of encouragement is that Jesus died but was raised to new life. There is something about the Jesus story, the good news, that he went through death so that death can't have the last word. Let's go to our second question. Well, we still experience death, so what should we expect for those who have died in Jesus? Now, as I said before, this section that we're about to unpack is produced a lot of wild speculation. I went to a seminary, or maybe some of you have grown up in churches or Sunday schools, where they'll roll out a huge chart with hooks and Jesus coming back and seven years of this and a thousand years of that, and these people will, will kind of be suffering over here, but then this happens after that, and then this and this and this, and basically it produces things like this. That's our friend Kirk Cameron, 
who went from lovable family sitcom star to ambassador for Jesus in a brand of American evangelical Christianity that took that orthodox statement that will be raised and Jesus will return and about after 1,000, 15, 16, 1,800 years of that, about 150 years ago, some American Christian pastors read this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, and they saw this word that was translated in Latin, and it's where we got our word rapture. And they began to see these images and pictures and metaphors that Paul paints with a descent and meeting him in the air and clouds and trumpets and angels. And then they begin to look into Revelation and they see this metaphorical apocalyptic book written in a code that made a lot of sense in the first century. Don't make a lick of sense in the 21st century, but we're going to try to unpack it. And we're going to look at the blood moons and we're going to see that perhaps God gave us this book as a puzzle to be figured out instead of a story of good news to show us that in Jesus, there's life. But if you don't like that first one, there's always the reboot. Yeah, says Toby. Now, I didn't see that one. I grew up in the 90s, so you better believe I saw Kirk Cameron left behind. But Nick Cage staring at you saying, are you going to be left behind? Was enough. This movie poster was enough for me to pass on this one. But for those of you who are uninformed, let me give you a spoiler alert. The idea rooted in this passage, this flimsy doctrine of a secret escape of the church, is from this phrase, we'll meet him in the air. And so how this gets played out in this wildly popular series of books and these less popular movies is that people are going about their business, minding their own business, and then all of the church people who are good and saved get snatched away, they disappear, and all they leave behind is their hands and fruit of the looms. (laughs) Which is really inconsiderate for all of those poor folks left behind. they got to do their laundry and clean up their car because you just ran into them because you got sucked up into the air. And the fruit of this kind of doctrine is one that says, you know what? God's just going to trash this earth, so who cares about how we treat it and drive our cars today? Because he's just going to trash the earth. Well, wrong. The creator cares about the earth, and the Christian hope is that he'll renew it. He's going to take the bones of what we've trashed and make it his own dwelling place. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's the fate of the earth. But this kind of rapture theology says, screw it, we're out of here. First plane, I'll fly away, oh glory. See ya, you're going to be suffering in the tribulation. Which is another term in Revelation, but that's another sermon. The other fruit of this kind of doctrine is some of my friends that grew up coming home from school. They see mom's pot of water boiling, not realizing that she went to the neighbor's house to get an egg. And they come home saying, oh no, it's the rapture! My friend Dan drops on the ground and is crying bitterly because he wasn't saved enough. The dude is 10 years old. And then mom walks in, seeing this guy, like, trying to get out of his hands so he can float up and say, back the van up. And she's going, what's going on with this guy? 
I know I'm being sarcastic and I'm making fun. I'm going to try to explain why I believe the doctrine of the rapture is a flimsy and unbiblical doctrine rooted in puzzles discerned in the last hundred years instead of three vital metaphors that has served the church and been understood by the church for the first 1,800 years. And they made a lot of sense to the Thessalonian Christians in which these metaphors were written. Two of them are Bible metaphors. One of them is a cultural metaphor. And I think Paul and Jesus' teaching should inform how we think about this instead of movies like we see on the screen. The other two questions I'm thinking of, just to rush past them, is, is this why Paul wrote these words? Fear? Or is it an encouragement that, hey, if you're united to Jesus, you'll be raised like Jesus, live with Jesus forever? We'll talk about those who aren't united with Jesus next week, Lord willing. The second thing I'm wondering as I'm preparing for this talk is, is this what Paul intended? Is this why and is this what he intended? Let's explore these three metaphors in the last chunk of our time. The first is you see that he'll descend, right? And this is really interesting and speaks directly to these Thessalonians who are worried about their friends who've died. Paul is going to say, guess what? When Jesus comes back, when Jesus descends, he's going to be with who? The people who what? Who died. The people who went before us, don't worry, Jesus is taking care of them. And in some mysterious way that I don't understand, when Jesus returns, he's got a posse. He's got a posse of your grandmother and father and mother and friend and brother and sister who said yes to Jesus, who have fallen on the mercy of Jesus, who Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible for them to be loved by God and brought into relationship with God. He's going to be rolling millions deep with people who are waiting to be reunited with what? Their bodies. Now this is getting real trippy. But you need to understand that this is the classic Christian hope. And it's the hope of resurrection. Because when Jesus returns with all of his people that have died in him, I believe first that when we die, we are in some way present to Jesus. Right? Spoiler alert, next week Paul says in one of a handful of places, he says, whether we're awake or asleep, we're with Jesus. He says elsewhere that when I'm absent the body, I'm present with the Lord. Philippians 1. But if you really want to freak out a youth group in Texas like I've done, ask them what's the point of Christian life, and they'll say, uh, going to heaven when you die. I say, great, you have 10 minutes, find all the verses that says you go to heaven when you die. And they're going to look at you in about five minutes and say, what? There's a scant few glimpses that says when we die, immediately we open our eyes and we're with Jesus. And doesn't that make sense? If you're following Jesus now, if you're walking with him now, why would he just leave you in the ground and wait a few thousand years till he comes back and raises you up? There's some doctrine in other denominations like the Seventh-day Adventists or others that read words like sleeping. And they say, yeah, we, we kind of put you to sleep, rest in peace, and then human history goes on, and then Jesus comes back, and, you know, like you get raised up. Well, Jesus is coming with those that are dead. I believe that when we're absent this body, in some way, I don't fully understand, we're with Jesus. Now, where is Jesus? Heaven, God's dimension. 
But we're talking pearly gates and all that. Y'all, that ain't till the very end. Because when Jesus comes with a million deep, he's going to let these dead people be reunited with their bodies like Jesus is. Jesus was raised. He's still in some ways raised in some super body that I don't fully understand. But John says when we see Jesus face to face, we'll be like Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus returns, he's going to renew the world and he's going to renew us first. More on that in a minute. First, I want to talk to you about Jesus descending million deep with the dead in him. He returns, and we have this metaphor of descending. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about how heaven and earth should really be thought of as two dimensions. Earth is our space. Heaven is God's space. And God is constantly intervening and suffusing earth with more and more heaven. So in the ancient worldview, they did think in the air, that was heaven up there and earth is down here. So Paul's using this metaphor, well known to them, that gods descend to our space to meet with us. Stay with me. I'm going to take you to Exodus chapter 19. It's on the screen. See if any of this language sounds familiar to what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. Y'all got your Bible caps on? Here we go. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. God has just brought these people, Israel, through the Red Sea, and they're meeting him on this mountain. And then here's what that meeting looks like. And a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses, listen, led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Hold on to that, please. And then they stood at the foot of the mountain. It continues in Exodus. They keep going and say, uh, in verse 17, do we have it there? Yep, or 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed up like a furnace. The whole mountain trembled as the sound of the trumpet, hello, grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice, hello, of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Here's what you need to underline and take away from all this. Does this language sound familiar in 1 Thessalonians 4? Yes. What is happening in Exodus 19? Short version, God is meeting his people, okay? God is encountering and showing a new reality, this is how you're going to live with me, to his renewed people, okay? He just saved them, rescued them from death and the enemy. Are you with me? We're going deep. Please stay with me. Now, this is an encounter of the living God with smoke and descent and fire and trumpets calling people to wake up and pay attention. Do you see the metaphor of descending and encountering a new people renewed to a new reality? The second image that this picture borrows from as well, we see in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when he talks about how Jesus, the Lord, is coming on the clouds. Y'all know one of the favorite things that Jesus referred to himself as as the son of what? Man, the son of man. That's kind of a cool title. It comes from where? Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus took this vision, this image in Daniel chapter 7, 
And he embodied it, took it upon himself, and he referred to himself as one like a son of man. Daniel sees this vision and says, I see this human-looking person approaching the throne of the Ancient of Days. This is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I see this human one approaching the Ancient of Days. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. And this king, this son of man, is given glory and dominion and a kingdom that will endure forever. This is in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. And what this is, is a picture of a king who is vindicated before the whole world. There was all these other kings that Daniel talks about, but this son of man becomes the vindicated true king that approaches the throne of God, and God is delighted to give this king the kingdom. Are you with me? This one who came on the clouds. Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection, ascension, return in these terms. We don't have time to get into it, but man, Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate, this is all over the New Testament. Hello? Man, there's so much here. Now, the third metaphor. We had descending, we had clouds. Now we have the big one, and that is when he comes. Okay, that's a Greek term, parousia. Perusia. Now, y'all stay with me. The first two metaphors are Bible metaphors. The final metaphor of coming is a cultural metaphor. It's a culture word, not a Bible word. That word means arrival or coming or presence. It was a word used for an emperor or a city official coming to visit your fair town. Several years ago, I was coming back from a trip on Southwest Airlines, and I landed in Love Field, and Amy came and picked me up, and she says, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? She goes, just wait, just wait. So we get in the car, and we start driving down Mockingbird, and immediately I realize something is up, because I'm not lying. Y'all know how long Mockingbird is, okay? Some of y'all work over there, some of y'all drive over there. Listen, every 20 feet... And sometimes I exaggerate. Hello, Amy knows this. I'm not exaggerating when I say every 20 feet, for miles down Mockingbird, there were unmarked vehicles with men in suits and little wireless headsets, secret service men standing every 20 feet down a stretch of Mockingbird, every other driveway. Why? Because by God's grace, I landed before Air Force One did. Because if I landed after, I would have been there for another like three hours. Why? Because the president's arrival, this time was Obama campaigning for Hillary, and they met him at the gate, and they ushered him into the city where he was to meet his people. Okay? That is the 2016 version of this word. The Thessalonians knew this word. And I want you to think of it less like a, I'll fly away, oh glory. I want you to think of it more of a welcoming home party. Okay? So when we read Paul's metaphor, mixing this idea of coming on the clouds and the sounds of the fanfare of all this stuff, wake up, a big deal is coming, a king is coming. Do y'all think... That the Thessalonians, if they were meeting the Roman emperor 
and they saw him on the horizon, that they would just be kicking it in their house saying, man, he'll be here in a minute, it's all good, and they just look on their phones? Or do you think they want to make a big deal as they welcome him into their city, right? We want to make Dallas look good. We want to make Thessalonica look good. So when they see the king coming and they hear the trumpets, everybody freaks out, hops up, and they run out to meet the king. When Israel, in Exodus 19, was delivered and rescued, they ran out to meet the king on the mountain. When Jesus returns with all of the dead in him, behind him, we will run up to meet him and we will usher him back down to our town and what we've been praying for for decades, that heaven would come, that the earth would be like it is in heaven, will finally be answered in full. These are words Paul says to encourage one another with. But when he comes, we meet our Savior and usher him down. I won't read the whole thing, but you can write down Philippians 3.20 as we prepare for questions in just a moment. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. And he goes on to say that he will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Now stay with me. The hope is not just that he returns. The hope is that we will be raised like him. This echoes words in 1 Corinthians 15. Y'all write down 1 Corinthians 15. I've got a snippet of it here that should sound familiar. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now hold that. Remember when we read 1 Thessalonians 4, he said, look, those of us who are left, we ain't dead, but something's got to give because our lowly bodies need to inhabit God's new space, God's new earth. And we're going to look and be raised like Jesus. So listen, the dead are going to be raised and the living are going to be changed. That's about it, I can tell you. I don't know what that looks like. And that's what I'm going to close on in a minute. But he goes in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, there's the trumpet again. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Resurrection in the new heaven and earth are our hope. Not floating in some cloud with harps. Whatever it looks like when you die today, if you die today, I hope no one dies today, but if you do, I believe you'll open your eyes and you'll be with Jesus. Toby read from the message translation. That was translated by a man named Eugene Peterson who pastored me for over a decade through his writings and works and thoughts. He died this week. I believe Eugene, at this space-time moment, is at rest with God somewhere, somehow. I trust that God has taken care of him. And when Jesus returns, Eugene's going to be rolling with him, with my grandma, Bobby, and my grandma, Mary Lou, and my great aunt, BG. And we're going to have a party welcoming home as earth becomes like heaven. So Paul has these three metaphors, descending, clouds, coming. Well, we let Paul's metaphors inform our understanding of Christ's return 
Or will we let wild speculation and misunderstanding of our time, like left behind, keep us guessing and wondering? No, we can stay awake, we can stay hopeful, and we can look forward to the day when he does make all things new. So let me pause there. I'm going to wrap up in just a minute. And I'll say this as you prepare to reflect and respond. That we may not understand the specifics, but we do trust the Savior. So with that said, let's have some wild speculation about the specifics, okay? No, I'm just kidding. But any questions or reflections or comments, help me. What did I miss? I kind of burned through a lot of that. What are you all thinking? Yeah, Mark. Yeah. Sure. Yes, that's exactly right. Mark said they're give, he's giving hopes to, hope to people grieving their dead relatives. That is exactly the takeaway and the main point. He says it's almost like he's mirroring what Revelation says. Yes, this is the consistent hope throughout the New Testament, spoken of in different ways, but all pointing to the same goal. We're, if we're united to Jesus, we'll be raised like Jesus, and we'll live forever with Jesus. Other thoughts, questions, clarifications? Yes, he says that the focus of this kind of thing in doctrine is hope instead of fear. And this is why hope informs our grief, right? We should be people looking ahead to say, hey, to those who don't believe this, we say, guess what? We believe, we don't know how everything's going to pan out exactly, but we trust, Jesus does, and we have enough of a glimpse that all of this that is killing you and breaking you down He's, it's not lost on him. He's not going to waste your body. He's not going to waste this earth. He's going to renew it. What other faith in this world can make that stark and bold and amazing of a claim that he will not waste any of it? It's not that we escape it. No, he's going to redeem it and transform it. What's stronger? Escape? Like Buddhism and just relieving yourself of nothing and then you get to go and have this transcendental nirvana state or that this state, as broken and dark as it is, is going to be the raw material that God does his best work. That's what our faith is. You, raw material, broken, hurting, sinful, guess what? Jesus redeems it, this you, right now. Not the better version of you, this one. He does the same with the earth and our bodies. One or two more? Yeah, Jeremiah? That's it. That's it. Yeah. He said, just going off of what Robert says, um, it's focusing on the main thing, which is Jesus. This is the trick. Paul says very little about the geography or location of heaven and what that's going to look like. He says a whole lot about the relationship with Jesus, and that should be enough to get you through. Not only now, but that he gets the last word in the end. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's good news. He's going to sort it out. We're going to be in his care whether we're dead or alive. That's hope, okay? And he also said Y2K and my encounter. Shout out to all the people who were freaked out in Y2K like I was. Anything else before we wrap it up? All right, well, thank you all for hanging with me. I want to just close with this, and maybe it will help you. But when we're speaking of our resurrection and Jesus' return, these are 
wild and amazing truths of our faith. But ultimately, we're trying to describe something that we can't fully describe, right? This is a phrase that, or an illustration rather, that N.T. Wright uses a lot. We've heard other pastors use this a lot. But I think about these things when I think about a newborn baby. So this week, my cousin Rachel is expected to deliver baby Harper. So for nine months, little Harper has been in utero, and little Harper has heard her father Dave's voice. Little Harper has heard her mother Rachel's voice. Little Harper has heard music and has seen lights changing and reflecting and perceives food and temperature and has all of these glimpses of what the world out there looks like while she is in here. You with me? Now, what if creepy cousin Adam came over this week at Medical City and I said, Harper, I'm going to explain to you the color red. It's kind of like fiery and loud. No, actually, I'm going to explain to you what a tree is. It's kind of leafy and barky. <laughs> I can't even do it to you who know a tree. What if I try to explain to her the Grand Canyon? Dude, I had the Grand Canyon as my wallpaper for years. I wanted to go, and in 2011, I went and I hiked that son of a gun, and I couldn't believe how much the actual thing just blows away all the gorgeous pictures. All I had were glimpses. What I'm trying to say is you got to see red to get red. you got to see a tree to understand a tree. you got to see the Grand Canyon to really get the Grand Canyon. Could it be that what we're waiting for in death or in his return are glimpses and fragments of something that we can somewhat intuit but we can't fully know until we experience it. So the call for us today is to be people of hope and to be united with Jesus today, trusting that he will take care of us then. So if that's you and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and you want to say, yes, I, I don't understand it, but something draws me to it, that's when you pray with me and talk with Bud and pray with him, talk with any, anybody in here. Let's get it right. Let's follow him because he is stronger than death. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these wonderful and amazing truths. And that's why we have faith. The evidence of things unseen, unknown. So help us to know what we can know and to trust you and to let you take care of us now and then as we long and wait for you to come. And Lord, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Come and renew us. Renew our bodies. Renew this world. Cleanse this world of the violence and hate and bitterness to where your light and life will fill all like the waters cover the seas. Until then, we wait in hope, knowing that if we're united to you, we believe we'll be raised like you and we're as good as raised today. So let us walk awake and in the light and in hope that one day we will live forever with you. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus who defeated death and all God's people said, amen, amen. If everybody could please stand to receive the benediction. Go forth into the world in peace. Be a good courage. Hold fast of which is good. 
Render to no one evil or for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, honor everyone, and help uh, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing into the power of the Holy Spirit. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.